Veni, Veni, Venias, and welcome to our podcast. Good evening, and welcome to Ask a Medievalist. I'm M, the Ask portion of our program, and joining me tonight, as always, is Dr. Jesse Noose. Hello. You know, usually we say you don't have to listen to our program in the evening, even though we say good evening, but tonight we're going to be talking about drinks. So feel free to make yourself whatever you happen to fancy. I'm big on rum and ginger beer, a little bit of lime. Awesome. Ooh, I'm definitely bourbon and or whiskey, but probably bourbon. Yeah, something old fashioned <laughs> variety. <laughs> Yes. I feel like um, Wisconsin, it has to be brandy old-fashioned, oh, unfortunately. Yes. Yeah. Um, During quarantine, um, the Great Dane, which you probably remember, oh, is gosh, yes, now course. a towering Madison institution. You can yes. order, like, cans of brandy old-fashioned for takeout now. Amazing. Which is, yeah... So, but anybody, I think you you have to supply your own maraschino cherries, but it's uh, the same as, like, getting a keg, except you can get old fashions. Wow. Yeah. In Richmond, we have the Jasper, uh, and the Jasper is a fantastic, amazing bar. It is definitely one of the best bars that I have been in. Um, obviously, you can't go in it anymore, so they are also doing this, um... And so definitely a shout out to anyone in the Richmond area <laughs> to order from the Jasper. Um, they are connected to Carytown Cupcakes, which is also excellent cupcakes, unfermented. Um, <laughs> but you go pick up, you know, mm-hmm. and oh my gosh, though, they're, um, I mean, I should read off some of the stuff that they actually have, because it definitely fits in. One of the things we're going to talk about is... Um, just the astonishing variety of alcohol that exists in the world. Yeah, it turns out that not only was this a very early technology, uh, it was one that was adopted very enthusiastically. Yes. Um, and I will say, like, at the beginning of all of quarantine, way back, I was like, well, I can learn to make old fashions, probably, because um, they are not difficult. Mm-hmm. I have, you know, bourbon. Um, so I got, like, bitters and... Um, you know, the sort of uh, demerara syrup. Um, but, yeah, then the Jasper started their sort of delivery pickup. <laughs> and then it stopped um, being worth it, because... Yes, I mean, I still do sometimes, of course. It is yeah. cheaper to make your own. But we want to support them so that mm-hmm. they continue to exist. So, and I will say, like, everything they make is just astonishingly delicious. And so, and they just... I mean, I don't know how many drinks they have... Because at this point, they've been going since, I mean, of course, as a bar, they've been going for a very long time. But then they tend to have a sort of regular menu, and then they will switch things around for holidays and stuff. Um, or just, you know, certain weeks, this and that. But um, at this point, every week since they sort of started doing this, probably probably in March? Maybe in April? When did they start doing this? Probably in April. I mean, there definitely are drinks that have only been on there once. So there's some that they have regularly or, you know, and some that they always have. But then probably half of the drinks have maybe been on there once. And how many weeks is that now? Yeah. (laughs) You know, like all of them, like 70, 25 weeks. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, 
you know, so I mean, that's a sort of, I mean, cocktails, just cocktails, right? But alcohol is just endless variety. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So should we start with, let's start with our origin stories. Yeah. That's this turned place. out to be the problem with this episode is that it was going to be food and alcohol. And then I realized pretty quickly, I wasn't even sure if I was going to get to the middle ages <laughs> with alcohol, let alone food. Yeah. And so that being said, um, all right. So, <laughs> so fermentation. Yes. Fermentation is real old. Um, and actually, of course, you don't need humans to have it. Right. Uh, fermentation exists without humans. Right. Um, that is what happens when, like, apples fall off the tree and then, for, like, ferment on the ground, right? They get mushy, mm -hmm. and this is then they will leave their seeds, or animals will eat them and spread their seeds. And way back, way back, <laughs> so let's say more than 300,000 years ago. Okay, way back, yeah. <laughs> yes, a million years ago, I suppose. Um, anyway, there are some varieties of monkey who were real into this. And eventually, <laughs> um, that monkey ends up, you know, turning solely but surely into a hominid. Hmm. So hominids have pretty clearly been invested in fermentation since, you know, they came into existence, right? Pick up the fruit that's on the ground, um, eat it. It's got a buzz. It has sort of, I guess, what we would call today antimicrobial properties, <laughs> Yeah. Right? The sort of alcohol. In that it's rotten, but it's not going to kill you. Yes. Probably. I mean, you can certainly kill yourself with alcohol, right. but it's... Well, yes. <laughs> it's but also the, the rotten versus, like, fermenting, right? The idea is that you start to recognize the difference. Yeah. Right? Um, meat goes rotten. Apples ferment, right? And you start to recognize this as a thing. Um, anyway, so um, humans have definitely, or hominids, but also humans, so let's fast forward to 300,000 years ago. Um, humans have definitely been invested in sort of fermentation just as a thing, mm -hmm. probably for a very long time. Um, I mean, if you don't have um, an easy access to ice or something to keep your food cold... Fermentation yes. is definitely the technology to invest in because yes. you really, really want to be able to keep food around for more than like 24 hours. Yes. And exactly. That's how you, of course, this is how you do it, right? Um, and so eventually we will, of course, get alcohol, bread, cheese, all of these things that are invested in this process. That being said, right, alcohol is kind of special <laughs> um, because of the extra properties that it has, right? Um which is presumably why, of course, it ends up being used in religious ceremonies, um, right? It does have this mind-altering property, mm -hmm. so which is perfect. Religious ceremonies, spiritual ceremonies, you enter into a liminal state, right? Um, all of these things. So anyway, um, the actual production of alcohol is older than writing. Hmm. So there is an association between alcohol and civilization, which is to say civilization ostensibly starts to occur. And this, of course, we don't mean organized societies that have cool stuff going on. We mean in the sort of technical version of the word derived from the word for city. Right. Right. A um, place so, where there's lots of people. 
living together, yes. basically. In a stationary location. Yeah. So in that meaning of civilization, we frequently assume it to be sort of um, based on the fact of agriculture and that this is sort of where civilization comes from. It is interesting to note that alcohol has been around not only longer than writing, but the question, and this is the sort of thing that has entered the debate um, because of some of the dates we're going to talk about. Mm -hmm. There was always an assumption that, not surprisingly, I guess, uh, there was always an assumption that bread was the driving force behind agriculture. Sure. Bread is, of course, a staple. It is still a staple. Mm -hmm. I mean... Right? Right. <laughs> this is, man cannot live by bread alone, etc. I know enough that if you want to have a city, which means that if you want to have people who have specializations in things, right? Where So yes. not everybody has to be a farmer and grow their own farm, whatever. Right. Um, <laughs> that you need extra calories. And to, to get extra calories, you need a way to produce a certain amount of food and also to, like cooking it can make the calories more available right like so like turning grain into bread yes makes the calories easier to get than just like i don't know eating wheat from a field <laughs> easier to digest easier for the body to access yeah. Right. Yeah. Like that sounds gross just go out and grab a yeah. a wheat stalk and chew on it. Yeah. I do actually also want to add here, by the way, there's a sort of caveat. Um, that is to say, there's a sort of assumption um, about modern nutrition, which of course is better, <laughs> but only mm -hmm. really recently, you know, the past right. 150 so years, um, people start to grow taller, right? Um, because, and it's not just modern nutrition, it is of course modern medicine and science as a whole, right? Mm -hmm. That we can now access nutrients the the difference between being starving right starvation is one thing but you don't have to be starving to be malnourished you can actually right. eat a lot and still be malnourished right so all of these things are sort of recognized that's why we fortify our food with stuff right mm -hmm. folic acid and iron and stuff yeah um it's interesting when i was in vietnam so you know, I grew up in the 80s, you grew up in the 80s. They still had rationing after the war during mm -hmm. the 80s. So people who were my age, um, especially women, tended to be on the short side, like around five feet tall, I would say. Mm -hmm. I'm 5'3", and I often felt kind of on the tall side, ah. which does not happen in Wisconsin <laughs> with all these nope. uh, as much. Viking descendants right. um, hanging around. But... The kids that I was teaching who, you know, had been born in the, uh, let's say in the 90s, 90s probably, actually. Yeah. yeah, like they were 13, 14, 15. They were significantly taller um, because they'd been born after rationing had ended. Wow. And it wasn't like, it wasn't like the, the people my age were malnourished or anything. Like they were doing fine. They just had calorie restricted diets. Yep. Um, when they were young. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. And that obviously makes a huge difference. Um, I have a friend who grew up under communism and definitely blames it for certain things <laughs> mm -hmm. um, like muscle mass and just other. There was absolutely rationing, you know. Yeah. 
And there is something interesting about also the fact, for example, that we can um, like fortify our flour with iron or whatever it is. Iron deficiency mm-hmm. is one of the big things, especially for women, actually. Right. And just the fact that things that are so small, right? Iodine and salt. Um, yes. These tiny little things that we can do today that just wipe out problems that people had had for basically 300,000 years, right? As yeah. Long. Um, and so I right, do... Because, like, how are you going to live in Wisconsin without a source of iodine? Right. You know? Yeah. You can't... I guess, like, you know, nowadays we can fly things in, but, but we can also put iodine in salt, right. so... It's all you need. Yeah. yeah. And so that's that's the thing, right? And um, so, yes, it is true that, like... <laughs> Modern science has enabled extraordinary things. But if we are ignoring that, or also, of course, if we're looking at parts of the world where those things don't exist, it's sort of unfair to think of the past as being necessarily less nourished than we are today. Right? Um, they mm-hmm. frequently, that is not true at all. Um, for most of, for a lot of human history, certainly for the places we're going to talk about where all these innovations and food technologies are going on, um, they absolutely, I mean, are eating an incredible variety of things from incredibly variety of places. I mean, absolutely trade is a thing. You know, they're getting exotic things imported. So, yeah, I just want to say there's the sort of caveat that, yes, modern nutrition is different. But honestly, because of a lot of things that I think we don't really think about anymore, because we're so accustomed to it. Right? Yeah. Um, but in fact, <laughs> you know, um, fluoride in our water. Like, there are these little things that, honestly, you know, it's not just because... It's not because food is necessarily more accessible today. It isn't to a lot of people, right? We have food deserts, all this mm-hmm. stuff. Um, it's more because of sort of modern science and what it has done that the chances are good if you have access to food that you will be doing at least as well as most people, even the richest people did in the past. <laughs> um, but anyway, it's, so it's, but it's a little bit different from maybe the way we assume, assume it is. Yeah. So, but speaking of civilization, right? Um, writing, proto-writing appears about 7,000 years ago. So around 5,000 okay. um, BCE, before the Common Era. Um, and just sort of generally or... Specifically, like, cuneiform type of... No, well, proto-writing is, right, symbols and things that seem to be a form of communication. But we Mm -hmm. cannot prove it's a full-on writing system. Okay. Right? So, um, and this existed in a lot of places where writing systems later appear, of course. Um, So, like, Egypt and, yeah, the Middle East around Mesopotamia um, and the Indus Valley. Mm -hmm. But... um, Writing, the first writing that is considered, you know, true symbolic communication <laughs> um, is cuneiform from Sumeria, which is about 5,000 years old. Okay. So about 3,000 BCE, before the Chimera. And... So that's right in the same range as, like, the Harappan script and a bunch of others, too. Yes. Right around then. Yes. Yeah. Um, and cuneiform is seen generally as kind of the first fully realized written system. 
Okay. So I think Harappan sort of still counts as maybe a little proto, or it's a sort of crossover. Right. There are a lot oh, of these bridges. Yeah. People aren't quite sure. I'm not sure how much of Harappan has actually even been deciphered. That's usually the problem. Know. Right. You can't necessarily yeah. tell. <laughs> if you go yeah. and look it up for people who haven't, um, there's these like really cool seals and stuff that the Indus Valley civilization produced right around this time period. Yes. With pictures of animals and this and that. Yeah. But it's not clear what they meant. And Yes, they can't prove it's a, it's a written system. Right, which yeah. is to say that it's clearly a form of written communication, but what mm-hmm. exactly it means, um, you know, they could all be seals for different rulers almost or something, right? I mean, it, so yeah. it's not, they're not necessarily words, right? <laughs> uh, which is yeah. basically when we say writing, that's sort of what people mean is words. Um, mm-hmm. Proto writing is, is written communication, but something other than words, basically. Yeah. So um, anyway, so cuneiform sort of comes first in Sumeria. Anyway, so that's about 3000 BCE, 5000 years ago. Um, over 9000 years ago. So this is before 7000 BCE in China. People are making fermented beverages. Hmm. Right. Okay. Um, so this is, you know, a good 4,000 years before <laughs> writing, basically. Yeah. Um, and we know through chemical analysis that it was basically kind of wine, we would say. Um, and it was from rice, honey, and fruit. Okay. The recipe seems to have been rice, hawthorn berries, honey, and wild grapes. Hmm. Yeah. Um, which is kind of all of the things that we ferment all at once, right? So, of course, rice as a fermented beverage <laughs> is definitely still part of Eastern culture and very delicious. Yeah. Um, that's uh, sake, right? Or Absolutely. You know, and many other stuff. things. Yes, that's probably the, yeah. <laughs> the most famous. I don't remember. I don't yeah. remember what Baijiu is made of, but I bet I bet there's rice. Yeah. Um, I mean, so, and if, again, right, there's so many varieties of everything, right? So, but fermented rice beverages are a big one. Um, and then berries, of course, fermenting fruits, right? You get ciders and ales and all sorts of things. And wines, of course. Um, and wild mm-hmm. grapes, of course, wine. That's good. And honey, of course, mead, right? Um, yeah. So they're fermenting all these things together in a drink that must have been basically like a cocktail. I mean, really interesting. Yeah, and that is real long ago. So this is before cities, as we kind of consider them, really exist. This is at a time when people are just sort of starting to farm. Mm -hmm. Um, In this part of the world, I mean, people start at different times in different parts of the world. Um, But this brings us back to this really interesting question of what actually drove agriculture. And the assumption it's bread, because bread is kind of considered the stuff of life. And as I said, that's always been true. And of course, today, you know, it's always been a metaphor for um, mm-hmm. breaking bread, right? It's a metaphor not only f- as a, for a food staple, um, but for um, basically sort of, you know, things like gift giving and feasting, right? Um, and mm-hmm. guest host relationships, you know, if you break bread with somebody that then you can't, like, stab them in the back, and, you know. Um, yes. So bread has generally been considered the sort of driving force behind a lot of this. But there is a starting question as to whether or not the driving force behind agriculture may actually have been alcohol. 
Mm -hmm. um, because there are a few places where the fermentation of grains and agriculture seem to be kind of linked. Um, mm -hmm. This is, of course, a situation which it could have happened differently in different places. There could be some places where agriculture was motivated by alcohol and places where it was motivated by bread. Um, but it is a very interesting question. The point, of course, being that on some level, perhaps bread making distribution, etc., doesn't inherently require the same um, stationary process, right? The point of being stationary is that you can make a lot of something. Right. And if you're a small group of people, which you probably are until you settle down and become a city, <laughs> mm -hmm. then you start to have a lot more people, right? But if you're a small group of people, you don't necessarily need that much bread. But alcohol is a different story. <laughs> um, that somehow we tend to need more of that. Maybe. Yes. Fair. Um, so there's some sort of interesting questions here. Mm -hmm. Some other old dates. All right. So in the Caucasus, um, now sort of Georgia. This is, of course, the country. <laughs> and also all the way down through the sort of the Zagros Mountains of Iran. Um, wine was made out of domesticated grapes. So domesticated grapes. Notice in oh, China okay. are really old dates. They're wild grapes. Now mm -hmm. we're domesticating grapes. Iran seems to have domesticated them real early. Um, this is at least 7,400 years ago. Wow. So about 5,500 BCE. They're making wine out of domesticated mm -hmm. grapes. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it does get easier if you grow your own, right? Than having to find grapes... Yeah, exactly. Um, but of course, once you start domesticating things, right, then that's agriculture, right? Yeah. So um, so the other side, of course, is that we, in this case, we have evidence for the agriculture based on the fermentation, right? Mm. I mean, yes. because the evidence of the wine, you can tell that they're fermenting grapes. You can tell that they're of a strain that had to have been domesticated. It's not wild. Mm-hmm. You know, so you get proof of the alcohol and the agriculture yeah. at the same time in this case, right? Mm -hmm. I'm going to bet because this happened a lot when um, fruits got domesticated that uh, as grapes got domesticated, they probably got bigger and more sugar content and stuff because oh yeah, yeah. people yeah people tend to breed the sweetest ones. and Yes. Um, watermelon, the same way, actually. I don't know if we've mm -hmm. mentioned this. This is... I don't know if people fermented watermelon, but probably. People certainly do today. Um, <laughs> yeah. But in Egypt, there are paintings of red watermelon hmm. in tombs and things, the wow. same that we eat today. But the ones that grow wild are these sort of bitter yellow ones. Um, and there are no, you know, for like thousands of years, there weren't domesticated watermelon in Egypt. Hmm. Um, so looking at these tombs from ancient Egypt people sort of wondered because they looked like modern. So did they domesticate mm -hmm. watermelon? And then at some point they stopped and it kind of went away. And so now there aren't any, you know, I mean, now there are again, but for a long right. time there weren't domesticated watermelon. They're just these yellow bitter ones. Um, and they finally in a tomb found evidence, right? Someone had gotten buried apparently with some watermelon. Um, and sure yeah. enough, it's a strain that's clearly domesticated like the ones we eat today. 
Wow. So the answer was yes, they absolutely did. <laughs> and just at some That's point, incredible. They stopped. We but, just lost the technique. Yeah. yeah. You know. Um, hmm. But yeah, right. So domesticating things. Yes, we. It of- makes me wonder how much other stuff has been lost over the course of hu- human history. Yeah. Probably a lot. You know. Mm-hmm. And then we we things resurface, right? Um, but you know, yeah, this is what happens with wars and this and that. Um, so, all right. So this is sort of going through all these things. Um, the reason though, these are all kind of slightly later dates, right? We're still 7,000 years ago. It's still not super long ago in some ways. Um, but in Neolithic Turkey, Mm -hmm. sort of slash Syria, that area, it's quite possible they were actually brewing things maybe even 11, thousand wow. 12,000 years ago. Yeah, there's a site there's a site that's considered probably a religious site. Um Gobekli Tepe. And um it's one of the oldest if it is a religious site, which is sort of the assumption, it seems to be one of the oldest temples that has been uncovered. Um and it's not clear, I mean it seems to be a place where um mm-hmm. groups that were not settled so that were maybe a little more nomadic, um, came to worship, and they found these huge vats where there had clearly been a mix of sort of grain and water that could have been alcohol. They can't prove the <laughs> fermentation, so it could have been oatmeal. But the but, sort of yeah. <laughs> the location of the vats, I mean, sacramental yes, there's this sort of feeling. Or sacramental beer, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. In this case, beer, yeah. And the sort of question was, was it for religious purposes? Yes, so sacramental, essentially. Um, or someone else suggested that maybe it was part of sort of the festival, you know, today we oh, might sure. say like a barn raising. You come help build, right? Or everyone comes together, you help build the temple or finish parts of the temple. Um, and then this is sort of your reward for helping out, right? Hmm. Um, yeah. And this would also then be probably them kind of looking backwards from things like ancient Egypt, where in fact, um, a, you know, there was basically brewing on an industrial scale, partly for workers building the pyramids and stuff like that. Right. Wow. Okay. So, I mean, yeah. Right. Um, so, so this is really sort of interesting idea of, um, and again, this would be before agriculture really. So were they sort of driven, that's the point, right? That you need these large quantities of grain to get alcohol. That this might have been a reason to start agriculture. Hmm. Right? Yes. Make it that much easier. Yeah. Exactly. Um, And as I said, like, again, the site in China, which they were creating these really sophisticated fermented wine, essentially. um, And they'd only just started farming. Which again suggests that maybe <laughs> um, they had started farming partly for yeah the alcohol again, right? For the rice and you know the grain for the alcohol, because their fermenting process was clearly very sophisticated, right? They're mixing rice and honey and grapes and mm-hmm. right. Um, so there is this sort of very interesting question. Um, all right, so these so there, are, there are these really old sites where we sort of, mm-hmm. some of them we know there was fermentation. Some of them, again, um, in sort of Neolithic Turkey, we can only guess. But that does start to push 
if that was fermented, it starts to push um, fermentation back to the same time as even potentially a little before agriculture. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, So. (laughs) uh, Fermentation is usually um, yeast driven, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, That's what does it. um, Yeah. Yep. Some sort of grain or whatever. And you're, You'd be using yeast from the air in this point in this situation, mm-hmm. probably. Um, yeah, and so we got, yeah. you know, and the thing is, you can ferment so many things, also, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is also great. Um, and and of course, um, well, okay. So it's a little mm-hmm. mind boggling that somebody was like, uh, "How's the oatmeal doing, Bob?" Right. And Bob goes, uh, it smells kind of whiffy today. Yes. And the guy's like, I'm going to try it anyway. Yep. <laughs> I'm hungry. Well, this is, and of course. And he's like, oh, this is great. Yes. Let's try this with something else. Yeah. The idea you would get in the mash first, which makes sense, right? Yeah. Um, but, of course, you think of how quickly things could spoil. Um, mm-hmm. It does make a lot of sense, sort of. Right? This is something, yeah. Um, that you would run into this process very early mm-hmm. on, right? Um, so w- the fun thing, of course, is modern historians trying to recreate this stuff. <laughs> um, of course they do. Which there are people who absolutely do. Yeah. Um, and so one of the things that's been recreated is a Sumerian recipe um, for beer. From mm-hmm. about 4,000 or 5,000 years ago. Um, it's worth pointing out. So we mentioned that this is, of course, writing also started in Sumeria. Yeah. After right after this, yeah. right? <laughs> um, so if writing started the 3,000s, right? You know, the that's how we got the recipe written down, right? So, uh, so this was already kind of a settled recipe, maybe by the time they wrote it down. Presumably, yes. Right. Mm-hmm. So this recipe is written down about four thousand years ago. So about two thousand four to five thousand years ago. So right. So two thousand two, three thousand, I mean to when writing sort of starts. Mm-hmm. It's written down pretty early. Um and it's a hymn actually to the goddess of sort of beer and alcohol. And this is of course one of the fun things. Um in Kazi, goddess of beer, um uh, she wasn't necessarily a super important god in the pantheon, you know. Um, but she has become very important sort of to modern historians because of things like this. I mean, the hymns yeah. to her do reference recipes and the brewing process. Um, and so there actually seems to be a kind of interesting mix. This is, of course, what writing is for. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, that the hymns may have originally, I mean, this is sort of suggestion. The hymns may have originally been kind of a way to pass on the knowledge. Sure. But of course, once you get writing, you can just write it down, of course. Um but at the same time, obviously, the hymns are thanking her for this knowledge, right? I mean, this is an important thing to know how to do this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the sense, though, right? Sumeria, you get cuneiform, you do get this very early, this very early hymn that is basically a recipe for beer. And it's, it has been recreated, essentially, um, with mostly barley which is sort of one of the big staples for beer, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but also with um, emmer flour, this is an ancient grain 
they've got. Okay. Um, and then, of course, a little bit of yeast and some water. Sounds good. Yes. And um, the there's a great article that runs through a lot of this stuff in the National Geographic, uh, February 2017, called A 9,000-Year Love Affair. Oh, you know what? I think this hymn might also be reprinted in um, Ryan North's Guide for Time Travelers called How to Invent Everything. Oh, probably. Yeah. I mean, I would imagine it's... I mean, it's obviously sort of the earliest written recipe we've yeah. got. <laughs> yeah. Writing having been just invented, basically, right? Um, certainly, like, yes, full-on writing. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, so uh, this article, it goes through a lot of this stuff, but one of the great things is um, it goes through um, the, the author, Andrew Curry, um, hangs out with Martin Zarnkow in Germany, who researches and recreates a lot of this stuff, and he recreates this recipe. Um, and the author of the article, Andrew Curry, tries it. Um, and his description, he says, the beer is both tart and sweet, bready with a hint of sour apple juice at the end. It's actually pretty good. <laughs> okay. Which is totally, probably fair. I mean, it probably was. This is the thing about alcohol right? Yeah. You ferment the right stuff in the right quantities, it's probably going to taste pretty good. You know? It just depends on your taste buds sometimes. I mean, some people like sour ale, some people do not. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, in some ways, a lot of this is unchanged for thousands and thousands of years. (laughs) Right? Um, And so, it's worth remembering, of course, uh, because we're talking about Sumeria, Gilgamesh, of course, famously. Yes. Um, he personally was probably a somewhat historical figure, um, king of Uruk, between maybe 2800 and 2500 BCE. The whole time. Because he's <laughs> the son of a goddess. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> somewhere. Right. Uh, but yeah, so somewhere in there is probably the historic Gilgamesh. Mm-hmm. And this would be around the time, of course, this beer recipe is written down. So he's probably drinking this beer or something like it, you know. Um, I remember that uh, grain and flour and bread all play significant roles in different scenes in Gilgamesh. Oh, yeah. Well, so um, I was going to say, first of all, right, the stories sort of originate in Samaria, of course. Um, mm-hmm. If he's sort of a real guy, probably 2800 to 2500, the earliest Sumerian versions of the stories we've got are from about 2100. So a few okay. hundred years after he would have died. Um, and those we only have fragments. We have certain stories. Um, then we have some later old Babylonian tablets from about 1800 we BCE, of course. Yeah. We sort of assume that the story was translated between the two of them. Well, right? they're all sort of different. I mean, the Sumerian ones, some of them are the same, but some of them aren't. Mm-hmm. Old Babylonian, we just don't have enough really to know if there's anything new or different there. Um, and then the standard Babylonian is the one we've really got. And that's the mm-hmm. youngest one. <laughs> that's the stuff that we found, I believe... Yeah, this is 1300 to about 1000. It's the Library of Babylon yes. that they sort of found and they Asher like, Banipal's sort of, yeah um yeah so this is about 1300 to 1000 is when this one's from the standard Babylonian and um yeah it's from Asher Banipal's library uh he was super proud of it 
and he should have been. <laughs> is it in Nineveh, that great city? Yes, it was. Yes. I mean, this is the point, of course. Um, yeah. And so that, yeah, that's his capital. He's king of Assyria, of course. We're talking Assyrian at this point. Um, he's born around 685. So you notice we're much later, right? 685. He reigns yeah. 669 to 631. We're counting backwards. This is still the BCEs. Um, yeah, in his capital, Nineveh, he builds this library. And he just collects stuff from all over. And he absolutely considers it one of his great accomplishments. And it absolutely, absolutely was. Because <laughs> one of the things we got yes. were, was a fairly complete standard Babylonian version of the Epic of Gilgamesh, which at this point has a ton of stuff mm-hmm. in it, some of which was not originally part of Gilgamesh's story, but has been interpolated. But that's the version we really got. And... Again, right, it's written down, you know, for somewhere between like 400 and 700 years before it ends up in this library. But that's really why we still have it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But there's a famous scene in this version that we get, you know, this sort of latest version um, where Enkidu, of course, who's the wild man, um, is still wild, right? He runs with the beasts and he drinks only water. This is a sign of how he is not civilized. He's an animal. And um, a prostitute, essentially, um, is sent out. She's She's a courtesan. She's a temple prostitute, specifically. She's high class. Holy. But, yes. I mean, it's not... Shamhat. Yeah. Um, Today, the fact that we think of prostitution as bad and terrible and lowly is not fair to her, but there we are. Um, yeah, she's sent out, um, and of course, right, has sex with him, and after that, the animals won't come near him, right? So this is the first civilizing influence, is sex. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then he comes back to the city, um, and he learns about bread and beer. Um, and the drinking of beer and the eating of bread, right, this is civilization. Right? Mm -hmm. Um... And so the importance of that yeah. in his, in Enkidu's sort of um, civilizing, right? <laughs> so yeah, the place that beer holds in this, right? Now he no longer just drinks water. So now he's not an animal. Yeah. So beer, right? So this is sort of mm-hmm. Sumeria and beer. I think, you know, we sort of obviously associate Egypt <laughs> with beer, Um but it's worth pointing out mm-hmm. that they're not alone. We'll get back to them in a second. Um, but there's also, there's a site in northern Syria, Tal Batsi, um, from about 3,400 years ago. Mm-hmm. So, you know, 1400s, I guess, BCE. Um, and this is a site that was evacuated uh, because of a fire. I mean, a fire sort of raged through this area this part of the neighborhood or whatever and you know people just had to leave um and so it's just you know that it was just buried Mm -hmm. right um so it's this sort of snapshot of daily life um and people are in the middle of tasks like cooking and things so there's this sort of great you know record left um and in each house usually close to the front door um excavations found a huge 50-gallon clay jar sunk into the floor. Hmm. Um, And chemical analysis has revealed traces of barley um, and thick crusts of this sort of residue that usually gets left um, 
again, by the mixture when you're fermenting things, which makes it pretty clear, right? In this case, again, you can't tell 100% the fermenting, but it is pretty clear that these were little, like, microbreweries, right? Every house had its own little brewery. Um, You had your Mm -hmm. 50-gallon fermenting, you know, and yeah, I mean, so it was a sort of the staple, right? Like with bread, (laughs) you also had your beer. Um, So Egypt, um, first of all, did absolutely also drink wine. This is important. Um, I think Herodotus says that they didn't. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And because, of course, they were always so famous for beer. But they did. Um, Or he says, like, they didn't have grapes. Um, But Mm -hmm. they absolutely made wine um, starting very early, you know. Um, Wine. They had domesticated honeybees, too, didn't they? Fairly early. Yes. So they domesticated um, bees. Yeah, by 2500. Okay. At least they domesticated bees in Egypt, um, but by forty five hundred, so this would be, you know, six and a half thousand years ago. <laughs> so this is again we're looking way back, yeah. right? So by forty five hundred, they they're putting wine jars in tombs. Okay, right. Um, so at this point already, I mean, this is really early, um, and then by twenty five hundred. Um, there are paintings in tombs of wine being cultivated. The grapes being cultivated, all the stuff being cultivated. Um, and they drank both red and white wine, but the paintings are all of red wine being cultivated. Hmm. But anyway, so wine is absolutely a thing. But yes, by this is sort of, you know, by 4500 already for sure. Um, by about 3150, we know that they're brewing beer on an industrial scale. Wow. Okay. <laughs> um, so they're bearing it. They're bearing it. They're brewing it um, to supply the workers on the Great Pyramids at Giza. All of this stuff. I mean, they are like mm-hmm. full on. Um, yeah, and beer is so important to Egypt, right? That of course, not only is are people buried obviously with wine that goes back super early, but eventually um, royals, you know, kings, whoever, nobility, um, are buried with basically a little miniature breweries so they can, so you can make just... beer or presumably have their servants make it for them <laughs> in, in, the, the in the afterlife. Nice. Hell yes. Yeah. Um, and the importance um, in sort of the region, um, like we have records, I think, from um, Bab- Babylon again, Babylonia. So going back to sort of um, Sumeria and so on, right? Mesopotamia. Um we have records from a little more recently at this point, um, like 500 BC, but um, record just dozens of types of beer at this point, right? Okay. So um, in the region, sort of between Egypt and Mesopotamia and all these areas, right, by the time we get down towards, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the year zero, we have just dozens and dozens of kinds of beer. Sure. Right? So like red beers and pale beers and dark beers and just, you know, so like today, Mm -hmm. right? Microbreweries turning out just all of these kinds of beers. Yes. So as you move through sort of, we have no, no proof that they also wore thick black glasses and man buns, but (laughs) the same attitude. Yes. I mean, Egyptians did sometimes have like sort of their hair and buns and stuff. 
You got some paintings mm-hmm. of that. The glasses, I'm not mm. so sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> glasses is slightly different technology. Yes, yes. But, um, but yeah, so you, so there's just an incredible proliferation. But you can tell, of course, if you're fermenting things in sort of these regions as far back as like five, 6,000 BCE, maybe even all the way to like 11,000, right? Um, then obviously, as you work your way down, um, you know, as you start to hit like the 3000s, the 2000s, the 1000s, yes, you're going to have just astonishing. Mm-hmm. Pr- I mean, this is such a tested technology at this point, right? Yeah. Um, one of the really interesting things about this, <laughs> um, one of the people who um, co-directs the excavations at the site in Syria I mentioned, where they have their um, little nano breweries and their houses buried in the floor. Um that these people are really fun at conferences. Yes. <laughs> um, well, this person, so she thinks that maybe she's at the university um, in Munich. And um, she thinks that maybe the nutrients that fermenting added to early grain. So this goes back to something you brought up a while ago, but I wanted mm-hmm. to wait to bring it up until we'd got over all this. Um, she actually suggests that possibly, right? Because, yeah, fermenting stuff absolutely does make it easier to eat things. Um, easier for the body to sort of absorb some of the nutrients you need, stuff like this. Um, you've learned preservation, right? That maybe brewing and fermenting in this whole process aided their nutrition and is one of the reasons why writing was invented in the Middle East. Hmm. <laughs> that essentially... They're doing better nutrition-wise, all this stuff, you know, brain food, I guess. Um, That this might be one of the reasons why writing comes to them, I guess you could say. Um, My other argument to that, which I sort of like, is that, in fact, this the the whole point, right, that they are starting to brew things on an industrial level and therefore grow things on an industrial level requires Mm -hmm. record keeping (laughs) yes the earliest records that i mean this is basically what they are they're records of like grains and this right that's the whole point Mm -hmm. and so that that is a different argument (laughs) not the nutrition based argument Mm -hmm. but more the idea that um this sort of sense of trade and commerce that was driven in part by alcohol and fermentation um may have led to writing, right? That is, yes. and that is what we have. I mean, the earliest written records are, it's trade. It's amounts of stuff. I remember there was a very early, it's like a complaint that one guy wrote to another guy where he's like, I paid you for this much copper and you only sent me this much copper and like, what do you take me for? Yes. Like, this is very disrespectful <laughs> behavior. Yep. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's like a, amazing little clay tablet i i think it must be yeah. probably the size of a cd mm-hmm. box but absolutely yeah right yeah. this and this is exactly what writing was for <laughs> um i agreed to send you this much for this much money i i only received this much so yeah absolutely right and of course there's so many other things being traded but alcohol is absolutely being traded right mm-hmm. um, I do want to run down some other things that are being fermented just because we talked about it. so in the Americas sure. uh, Americas indigenous people are fermenting corn 
by 7000 BCE. So again, we're definitely back in that 9000 years ago period. (laughs) So corn is being fermented, obviously. Um, Cacao wine by 1400 BCE. Okay. Um, so that's a much newer thing, but cacao wine is something I really want to try. Mm-hmm. So I bring that up. I forget. Like, I feel like there has to be a fermentation before you can turn cocoa beans into chocolate. Sure. It's part I of feel the- like that's part of the process now. It is sometimes, so yeah. Mm-hmm. Making cacao wine makes a lot of sense, honestly. It does make a lot of sense. I super want some, but yes. Um, <laughs> all right. Cassava beer. Um, cassava plant, of course, cassava beer mm-hmm. by 4000 BCE. Um, a potato fermented drink, beer, sort of, maybe, um, by 13,000 BCE. So again, this wow. is before agriculture. They're, they yes. grow wild, right? Um, and interestingly, I just read an article unrelated in Archaeology Magazine <laughs> about <laughs> potatoes in, in this case, North America. There's a variety of wild potato that they're trying to prove was actually grown agriculturally thousands and thousands of years ago. Mm Because it still grows wild, but there are certain places by really old settlements where you can prove that it clearly was purposely grown. I mean, because it exists there in numbers that it wouldn't otherwise, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But yes, potatoes do grow wild here. And so the 13,000, right, this is, of course... Before agriculture, presumably they're yeah. being gathered, but also again one of those reasons why you might start to grow them on purpose, <laughs> because <laughs> yes, they may. yeah, just make it easier on yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, all right. There's also a really old Mayan drink. Um, I mean, as old as the Mayans are. So again, this is um, this would be medieval, but may have existed medieval. So on this side, right in the mm-hmm. hundreds, you know, on common era um the maya well we have of course talked about them before um but this may have existed earlier of course it's we don't quite know how old it is but they definitely had this tradition the maya and it still exists in some cases among their descendants today um a drink called balche which was a bark of a tree soaked in honey and water and fermented okay um all right so that's some stuff for the americas um africa we add sorghum beer. This is, of course, outside mm-hmm. like Egypt and North Africa. Um, sorghum beer by 6000 BCE. And palm wine. Mm. Um, maybe way back, even as early, maybe earlier than everything else, by like the 16,000s palm wine. Um, wow. Yeah. Okay. I think, you know, it can't be sure they did it on purpose. That's the sort of thing that, but presumably, right? Mm-hmm. After <laughs> um, a while. Yeah. So, um, also, of course, maybe you don't have access to fruit or honey or grains or stuff like that. What do you do? Um, you ferment milk. So, particularly nomads in Central Asia, fermented milk. Fermented milk drinks yes. is still a thing. Mm-hmm. I remember hearing about this. Even today, I know that they they uh, they do this, and they turn the milk into cheese. Yeah. And one of the ways is they basically put the, I don't know, containers of it on the sides of the horses. And mm-hmm. then they gallop and the shaking of the horses, yep. like, churns the churns the milk. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's basically a fermented milk drink. Mm-hmm. Yes. 
Yay. All right. So those are some additional things that existed. Um, we have mentioned bees, of course, are domesticated fairly early in various places. Um, Egypt, as I said, by 2500, we know they're doing it. We got pictures. Mm-hmm. But of course, you can have mead before you have domesticated bees, right? <laughs> so you just have to be brave. Yes. Um, so like China, that recipe that's very old, right? Um, we don't know if the bees were domesticated or not. Unlike grapes, you can't tell by the strain, right? Yes. Um, so, mm, you know, as, yeah, we don't know. We don't know. Um, they just started farming, so it's possible that they were also keeping bees. But anyway. All right. So trade, we mentioned, right? This stuff gets traded all over the place, right? So trade, Mm -hmm. of course, people trade all sorts of luxury goods, but alcohol has always been a luxury good, right? So reading off the cocktails from the Jasper at the beginning, you have all these different brands of stuff, right? And we all know, you know, depending on what your favorite drink is, like what type of tequila or what type of gin or what type of bourbon or what type of rum, right? Yeah. Um, Some of them are very expensive, right? Certain wines are obviously astonishingly expensive, uh, depending on where they come from and how old they are. So, um, interestingly, France, which now, of course, makes very expensive wines, back in the day, and we're talking around the year zero before it, into Roman era and after it, also Roman era. <laughs> so we're talking mm-hmm. Rome, Rome here. Um, France imported red wine from Rome to the tune of the equivalent today of about 28 thousand bottles a year of expensive wine yeah and these are obviously the elites the elites in france at the time who are basically celtic or whatever are you know the ones that caesar hated in gaul Um, (laughs) they are importing i mean yeah they fought the romans but they are importing red wine from rome like nobody's freaking business i mean no wonder they end up learning how to do it themselves right i mean right Holy cow. So, yeah, to the 20, about 28,000 bottles a year of expensive imported wine would be today's equivalent. Um, yes, which is a lot. I mean, given the size of the country at the time, right? I was thinking the population was much smaller, yeah. Yes. Yes, yeah. it's not the same size as Paris today, obviously. All right. So um, they're just importing mass amounts of wine. What's interesting is while the Romans are making all this wine, they're mostly just exporting it because they themselves really like white wine. Particularly, this is, of course, the um, elites again. You know, the commoners have to sort of drink what you get. Um, Yeah. But they're also, of course, everyone is drinking wine. It's just you're drinking different qualities, same as today. Right. Some people drink their wine out of a box and some Mm -hmm. people drink it out of a cellar where it was like hundreds of years old. Right. Um. All right, so um, Roman elites love white wine. Uh, one of the very famous kinds of white wine at the time is imported from Gaza, oh. basically, the Negev. Um, ancient Israelites, I mean, at this point, we're not, we're talking Roman Israelites, right, making white wine that was apparently just incredibly mm-hmm. good. People talk about it all over the place. Um, but ancient Israelites, right, so the Bible, etc., um, probably learned beer, if not before, definitely in the Babylonian exile. Okay, yeah. Got good at fermenting beer. Um, also apparently fermented a date beverage. Oh, are these those, those dates that are really famed for their medicinal qualities? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's nothing that speaks medicine. Um, and I think they've been trying to regrow yes. them, actually. Yeah, they've been doing okay. They've had a few that they've regrown, and I 
I think they've managed to get some fruit. Um, yeah. Every time I check on the story, they've gotten a little bit farther. Yes, exactly. Um, but yeah, so the fermented date drinks, because nothing speaks medicine like fermentation, right? Yeah. There's just something about it that seems magical and good for you. And, you know, I mean, alcohol is antiseptic, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's the so- interesting thing is that there was, um, I don't know, I wouldn't necessarily call it, it's not really an urban legend. It's just a prevalent myth that if you're pregnant and you eat a lot of dates, it can make you go into labor. Oh, wow. And there's a lot of women who will eat a lot of dates at the end of their pregnancy when they're like, man, I am so done with this. That's awesome. And I think it was originally that particular type of date. Probably. That that people were interested in. Mm-hmm. That would make a lot of sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so here we are. Um, also worth pointing out that, of course, the wine is distinguished in places like the Bible and so on, but other fermented drinks mm-hmm. aren't necessarily distinguished as clearly. So, you know, it can be harder to tell what they are. But, um, yeah. yeah. I should right. point out my my one little trivia fact that I learned from listening yes. to old Clancy Brother recordings. Awesome. <laughs> um, is that the word whiskey comes from the old Irish Gaelic ishkaba, which means water of life. I thought that was very cool. And then I looked that up, and it turns out that Ishkaba is actually a corruption of the Latin, or a translation, I guess I should say, of the Latin aqua vita, which also means water of life. Yep. So um, the name and the substance got traded all over, you know, as far as far afield as Ireland. Absolutely. It's also worth pointing out alcohol, of course, you know, it's a cliche, but this is this has been what we think of it as for a very long time. Yes. I mean, it sort of is, right? And sometimes that's more mm-hmm. literal than others, right? Religiously, wine can be seen as blood. That goes back, that's obviously Christianity, but also even like the Greeks with Dionysus. Um, you know, so it's, that goes back a long ways, but mm-hmm. alcohol is. I mean, it is civilization. Look at Enkidu, right? Um, yes. Yeah, so the fun thing, of course... I feel like, sorry, when you say that, it just makes me think there's this great clip in Sherlock Holmes with Robert Downey Jr. where he opines on the differences between, like, Aquavita and what other people call it. And anyway, um, so, you know, we can bring that up. Um, it is worth pointing out, though, that modern spirits, um, this st- sort of thing, right, distillation of things like sort of vodka and, you know, the stuff we know today, really is perfected in the Middle Ages, particularly in the Middle East. Um And I think it's probably worth pointing out that there is an assumption, maybe, about the Islamic world not having had a lot of alcohol. That is, of Mm -hmm. course, not true. Um, It doesn't matter if your religion allows these things or not. Alcohol is everywhere. That's how it is. It just is everywhere. So they absolutely sort of perfect distilling. Europe imports it. um, And that is very helpful, right? And in a lot of ways, honestly, what happens in the Middle Ages to alcohol is what we still do today. Um, so we have modern tools, you know, in the sense that we can do a lot more of it at once because it's all mechanized. But the basic process really hasn't changed. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of the ingredients haven't really changed. I mean, like, a lot of things really haven't changed since the Middle Ages. Uh, and the Middle Ages, even, it's not so much that things changed, but they really perfected a lot of stuff. Um, mm-hmm. 
I want to give my own personal shout out to Kalamazoo, the big medieval conference that happens every year in Western Michigan. Um, for about 15 years, from when I sort of started going up until, I mean, now we didn't have it for a couple of years because of the, I mean, last year we didn't have it because of the quarantine and this year mm-hmm. we won't have it really because of the quarantine. Um, but for about 15 years, the Brewers Guild essentially brought ales and meads and such things made in a medieval brewing style. Um, and this stuff is fan freaking tastic, <laughs> which is why, you know, the guy in the National Geographic article trying the Sumerian beer that the um, German historian has made and is like, oh, it's actually pretty good. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. this stuff is good. It's absolutely still good. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. I mean, it hasn't changed. Like, you ferment this stuff, it's it's quite tasty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and meads are real sweet, and then you get the really sour ales, which I also love, and you get the, you know, everything in between, ciders. It's all good. It's delicious. Um, so I give a huge shout out to them for really making me think about this. Um, they have sort of stopped because the person who's doing it, I think, is retired. Um, hopefully some of the other people will kind of pick it up again, maybe. Um, but the last one they did, which was at this point, I guess, almost a year and a half ago, maybe, um, they did all of these recipes that had been left sort of by famous people. So like Hildegard and various people like mm. this. Um, you know, things that they had actually written down or things they had said that sort of suggested what type of alcohol they may have been drinking. Of course, if you live in an abbey, right, if you're a nun or a monk or just yeah. someone who uh, you are probably someone there is brewing their own. I mean, monasteries mm-hmm. and convents, this is one of the things they did. And then they sold it, of course. And they still do in a lot of places. Yeah. Um, also bees, right? Uh, they kept them. They made honey. They made mead. Um, so there's some really sort of fascinating stuff. Fascinating history. Um, but really delicious, <laughs> delicious stuff. Um, and one of the funniest things about it is not so much what they did. Because, of course, again, the basis is going to be the same. I mean, like... You know, on some level, you've got grains, or you've got a fruit, or you've got honey. I mean, but it's what you add into it, right? Um, and so we've talked about the Chester Harrowing of Hell before, the, the play, uh, where yes. the alewife is left in hell, right? Or she's maybe mm-hmm. the first person to arrive in hell after the harrowing. Um, so she has this... For cheating her customers. Yes, she's been cheating her customers, um, which, of course, is fantastic this is what people are worried about when they go out to a business you know you pay um i think we actually just sort of talked about this right the the idea that um you know the earliest writing is like i paid for yes once you have trade you have people shorting each other yes right i paid for this much and you only gave me this much yeah so like your cups would have maybe a false bottom or something right um you go out to buy alcohol at a bar today you get clear glasses Mm mm-hmm Right? You see how much they're giving you. This is a pint glass. You recognize it as a pint glass. You see them fill it up. You know you got a full pint. Yes. Right? That's partly the point. You can see that you're not being cheated. Right? There's no false bottom. (laughs) Right? There's no false bottoms. There's no... Right? Uh, That being said, of course, sometimes you probably wonder you go to a bar and you're like, yeah, this this pint looks Mm. a little smaller. Hmm. Right? <laughs> I'm not sure this shot is a full shot. Yeah, you know, I mm-hmm. mean, sometimes you get a cocktail, they're like, I think that was pretty watered down. Did they actually forget yeah. to put the gin in? Right? So it's not like we don't still have these concerns. We absolutely do. 
right? Um, and it's a great reminder that, of course, women absolutely brood. It's one of the things they could do. Um, but also, you know, m- monks, monasteries, convents, you know, it's a business that a lot of people have access to. Um, and one of her other lines is, Right. She says, um, when I was a brewer long with hops, I made my ale strong. Ashes and herbs I blend among and marred so good malt. Hmm. And this is a phenomenal reference to the fact that in England, you were not allowed to put anything into your beer. Huh. This is England's quality control. Nothing. Right. Just the malt. That was it. Um, and so she's been putting in hops, which is, yeah, <laughs> which she's in this case not supposed to. Yeah, today we assume, yeah, right. The commercials about how good someone's hops are and how much they put in, and mm-hmm. right. Uh, but in England, they did not want you to be doing this. Um, and really, up through kind of the fourteen hundreds, mm-hmm. um, and honestly, Chester, the play that we've got is actually from sort of later. It's from play that end of the 1500s, early 1600s even. Um, but it's a reminder of sort of the time it would have come out, presumably been performed, um, even in the 1400s, that you weren't supposed to be doing this, right? Okay. That's about the time England starts to maybe change its mind as kind of the 1400s into the 1500s. Wow. <laughs> so England's way behind the curve on this one, yeah. On a lot of other things, <laughs> too, honestly. I mean, they are kind of the backwater for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Basically, until we get Queen Elizabeth and Shakespeare and stuff like that. I mean, um, not, you know, they have Chaucer. I'm not saying they don't have great people. Marjorie Kemp, <laughs> Marie de France. You know, yes, they have some great people, but eh, they're, you know, in a lot of ways kind of behind the times. Um, so she's been putting in this other stuff. So hops, herbs, this herb blend, ashes and herbs. So this is probably a reference to the fact that... Um, it was kind of assumed there were certain blends of stuff you put in. Um, and this starts really early in the mm-hmm. rest of Europe. So like Carolingians, which is kind of like France and Germany, right? The Frankish empire kind of, um, they are definitely using hops, you know, so like by the seven, eight hundreds, that part of Europe is using hops for sure. Uh, we know that they're growing them. So they're, that's presumably why you wouldn't be growing mm-hmm. hops for anything else, right? Um, but there are a lot of things you add in, and there are certain mixtures that were sort of talked about, like gruit, um, that seems to have been a combination of like dried herbs, including like rosemary, maybe bog myrtle, which is this really sort of pungent flavor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this would be for a sort of sour beer, presumably, right? And the herb mix could be just sort of, you know, all sorts of stuff. Laurel leaves, you might have resins or saps. Um, other things that you might put in included bark, mm-hmm. which we talked about, right? The Mayans making it. Um, but the bark of certain trees, like alder or wormwood, um, mint, acorns, anise. <laughs> there are all sorts of things you could put in, right? So presumably um, the ashen herbs, she doesn't necessarily mean... She's not actually adulterating. These were things that people put in. Mm-hmm. To help with the clarifying, to help with the flavor. Sure. So she's actually kind of ahead of the time, but in England, <laughs> she is not supposed to be doing these things. Yeah. So here she's in hell for it. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so, right, the just the number of things that you could put in to the beer, right? Um, and as I said, the Islamic world, right, distillation is really um, perfected. Um, and so we've mentioned Ibn Daniel before as well. <laughs> yes. Right? Um, he comes up. 12th. 
Yes, from he time comes to up time. a lot. Yes, yes, 1248 to 1310, right? He's born in Mosul, Iraq. He flees to Cairo, Egypt because of Kubla Khan and his troops. Um, and he becomes an eye doctor, but really he becomes a court poet. He writes some incredible poetry and also these three very pornographic shadow puppet plays that are definitely for adults and are about religious hypocrisy. Um, and one of them, the shadow spirit, um, includes a hymn to Satan that he'd run, he'd written elsewhere, but um, <laughs> he popped it into this play because he decided okay. that it fit here. Yeah. And um, the reason it fits here is because our sort of hero, um, who is a character, a hunchback um, from Mosul, which is a hilled city, right? Mm -hmm. So he looks like his city. Which, of course, is also Ibn Daniel's city, so there's very much this sort of reference here. And he's, sort of, he's the shadow spirit. Um, but anyway, we have this whole commentary at the beginning where um, he's come to Egypt, right, to see a friend. Um, and he'd been expecting, right, this is Cairo. So this is the city of the arts and, you know, their brothels and alcohol and all this stuff he's been looking forward to. <laughs> um, and unfortunately, he's arrived right when the ruler had decided to crack down. Ooh. Right. There's nothing like cracking down on um, fun, right, <laughs> and making everyone really strict religious observers to yes. control the population, right? Um, and of course, this is again, this is about hypocrisy. Um, so the whole point is, it's not like the leaders are necessarily doing this, but they're forcing the populace to do this to serve as a form of control, right? Um, not let them have too much fun. Uh, and so, <laughs> um, in this play. Our character is lamenting that, you know, he'd like coffee alleviates sorrows. Um, if it were not for my fear that they would say that I obey Satan and disobey the Sultan and imitate Christians and Jews. And if it were not for my fear of the Sultan's punishment of sinners, I would do as the Sudanese did. They made beer from corn. Hmm. Right. All right. Then he talks about smoking hash, which is another thing he'd really like to do. Um, and then we get our hymn to Satan. Um, and he says, you know, our master Satan has died. His accustomed abode is now empty. Um, where are his eyes to gaze at wine? Taverns and colonnades have been emptied of wine and goblets have been put away. Wine jars have been broken and wine venters were imprisoned. Revelers were in a state of shock to see wine spilled on the floor. Their souls almost flowed out with it. Right? <laughs> Many buffoons and carousers say, oh, this day has come. Where are his eyes to gaze at beer? The wine flagons have been abandoned and the winery has been deserted. Bottles lie broken and the wine goblets were broken. <laughs> All right. Um... So we're also told, right, he's really terrified because the sentence now, supposedly, right, is crucifixion for drinking, right? Um, and so this is right. He's really worried and doesn't necessarily want to disobey, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, so the sort of point being, of course, this was a really cosmopolitan city that had all this stuff going on um, and has now been outlawed and he's very sad. Um, but obviously, yes, it was a huge, important part of the world. Right. Um, and of course, we there get the commentary. Christians and Jews are allowed to drink. <laughs> yes. Um, and so, of course, and do, definitely do. Wine is a huge part of all those rituals. Yes. Um, but anyway, so the Islamic world definitely also, you know, weirdly, very invested <laughs> in types of alcohol, even if they're maybe not strictly allowed. Mm -hmm. Um nonetheless sort of perfected and, and so on. Um, because that's, you know, alcohol is absolutely and has clearly been, before even civilization, a sign of civilization. Right? Yeah. Cool. I feel like we've gone 
I feel like that's a decent note to end on, honestly. Uh, it doesn't get Yay. much better than that, really. Does not. So, <laughs> um, yes. let's see. Final announcements. You can join us on Facebook. We have a Facebook group called Ask a Medievalist, where we post announcements of our episodes and a lot of other different chatter. If you have questions about the Middle Ages, you can always post them there. Or you can go through the form on our website, which is at askamedievalist.com. And uh, we have an email address, which is questions at askamedievalist.com. So, uh, as you can see, we're here to take any particular medieval-related questions. Have. (laughs) Yes, we will answer them maybe sooner, but you won't hear the episode for a while. (laughs) It's sort of the, the way that works. Yes. Yeah, we're... Yeah. <laughs> we'll... Mm-hmm. Yes. We will definitely get to things. Um, but the timeline is... We're not working on, you know, a normal... Right. Like, agile programming, two weeks, turn something around type of thing. We both have other jobs, I guess is the point. Yes. I promise never to mention Agile ever again. Um, <laughs> Hanagil. Yes. That's the only that's the only one we can yes. talk about. Um so we'll be back next week to talk about uh medieval foods. Yay. Which should be great. Yes. Um so until then, this is gonna air in like February. Who knows? Probably, probably a winter say. time when you will want to be drinking. Winter time. So, yes. So enjoy some uh, warm toddies and uh, keep washing your hands and keep it medieval. Ask a Medievalist is a production of This Can't Be That Hard Studios and is not endorsed, acknowledged, or condoned by Virginia Commonwealth University or any of its constituent departments. Our theme music is Veni Veni Venias from Carmina Burana by Carl Orff performed by the MIT Concert Choir and licensed under a Creative Commons Attributional Non-Commercial License version 3.0. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, why not tell a friend? For more on today's topic, including sources, annotations, and corrections, visit our website at www.askamedievalist.com. And if you have questions, feel free to drop us an email at questions at askamedievalist.com. 